This podcast edition of Other Side of Texas is brought to you by our friends at Flint Boot and Hat, a West Texas original. You want a great hat or you want to make your boots great again, go see them at 3035 34th Street or Flint and 34th Street in Lubbock or see more at flinthat.com. Hey, here at Other Side of Texas, we like to talk Texas politics, but in talking Texas politics, it assumes that the audience knows quite a bit about Texas politics. So to help us get an entry level for me to learn, for you to learn, for us all to learn, we have Dr. Branding Ronnie House at the University of Houston. He specializes in presidency and Texas politics and has written a book entitled Inside Texas Politics, Politics, Policy, and Personality in the Lone Star State. He's often sought after in interviews to comment on the news of the day as it pertains to Texas politics. And we're glad that Dr. Roddinghouse would take time to be with us here on Other Side of Texas. Thank you for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure. I, I'm happy to talk about one of my favorite things with one of my favorite people, so it works out perfectly. We're going to do a five-part series here. And this is the beginning of the series. And where I just want to start off, Dr. Ronnie House, is the origins of the Texas legislature. Talk us through early Texas government. Yeah. Well, the, the, the government itself starts with the Constitution, which outlines the rules that the state has to operate within. And uh, without getting too far into the kind of constitutional governance um, history, obviously Texas had a not-so-pleasant relationship with centralized government, um, and so they really sought to change the Constitution as a means to be able to um, maximize sovereignty but minimize central government. Bill Ratliff, who was the former um, Senate Finance Chair and also former Lieutenant Governor, had the following quote. He said, our Constitution in the 19th century by people who were terrified of centralized government. Um, it pretty much said it all. So a lot of the institutions in government that we'll talk about will be um, on purpose designed to be minimal uh, and theoretically close to the people. Um, the problem is that there's a tension between the needs the state has and sometimes the ability to be able to accomplish that. So a lot of the struggle we see will not necessarily be between you know Republicans and Democrats, although that happens, but between the kind of institutional rules that limit the ability of government to operate. Uh, the early Congresses are a really fascinating story. The first Congress the Republic met uh, in October uh, of 1836 in Columbia, Texas, in what was called a large dog house, uh, or dog trot house. Uh, this one is kind of oblong buildings uh, that most describe as being meager in every respect. Um, and the early House members were mostly newcomers to Texas. Um, there were some veterans of the Revolution, people who had fought. Um, some of them had fought alongside Sam Houston in San Jacinto. A uh, few of them had signed the Declaration of Independence. Actually, many of the senators had, um, and the range of individuals were, um, in terms of patient, were uh, from farmers to mechanics um, to um, several other kinds of things. Um, they had organized standing committees to be able to um, create um, kind of structure within. We'll talk later about the Speaker of the House, which is um, the most um, sort of iconic centralized structuring or individual and agent in the House. Um, and early on, although we now kind of think about government as a, um, uh, a sort of functional through parties, there weren't really parties per se early on. What we had were kind of those who were with Sam Houston and those who were against Sam mm -hmm. Houston, and that really split the state. Um, there's a great quote from Colonel James Morgan, who, when Houston was running for a second term, 
said that old Sam Houston, with all his faults, appears to be the only man for Texas. He is still unsteady and intemperate, but drunk in a ditch is worth a thousand of Lamar and Burnett, uh, the prior president and, and the subsequent president. So uh, there were some strong feelings, Jay, as there are now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll give Sam Gwynn, who's been on this program, credit for we've all seen it, but he really writes about it and understands Texas in such a way that leading up into those Congresses, you've had uh, pioneers, and then you've had folks who've fought at the Alamo, who've taken on Mexico, and are just short of being involved in a, a civil war, and they're not going to have a good temperament towards centralized government. Yeah, there's no doubt that this was out of a reaction to what they were sensing in terms of the, 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 the environment. So the Mexican government had not been good to Texas for quite a while before the revolution. They had done everything they could to kind of quash the growth of Texas, even though initially the goal was to populate Texas. So it's not surprising that um, they ended up, um, you know, the Texas government ended up where they did. Um, the problem for the first Congresses was that they faced some fairly serious problems. I mean, although the spirit and the kind of goals of the Republic were laudable and are, as you said, kind of make it historically really fascinating, they were not prepared to govern. <laughs> and the kind of questions they dealt with, like what to do with Santa Ana, who was still like in the possession of the Texians, uh, was really a question. Uh, provisional P- President Burnett um, essentially said he would kick the question to the first Congress. Well, the first Congress decided that um, they uh, were going to challenge Sam Houston on what to do. Houston said that he wanted to send Santa Ana to Washington to make a treaty with Jackson. The Senate did- and ultimately decided to keep Santa Ana in Texas. Houston vetoed the resolution, so there's a lot of controversy over what to do about that. Um, the biggest problem that the state faced at the time, or the republic faced at the time, was debt. They had about $1.2 million in war debt, and they were basically flat broke. Well, the one thing they did have was a lot of land, that about $200 million, 200 million acres of public land. Uh, so some of that was promised to veterans and volunteers uh, during, during the revolution. Uh, but they were going to try to leverage that land to try to pay off some debts. Um, problem is, Jay, when you know it, bad luck of the early uh, Texas Republic, the Panic of 1836, which was a sort of nationwide um, panic, uh, nationwide uh, depression, squashed the ability of the Republic to issue um, bonds to be able to basically borrow against the acreage that they had. Um, Texans also don't like taxes. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there were concerns about adding money, revenue taxes, uh, or through uh, the customs, uh, which the state imposed, but uh, had some difficulty trying to, um, trying to navigate successfully. Um, the other big issue was just they weren't sure how to deal with the political and economic interconnections. This has been a, a long-standing fight and a long-standing <laughs> so this problem isn't for new. Texas. <laughs> this is not new. No, um, one of my favorite Jim Hightower quotes is that you know remember that you know Christ in the Bible was you know drove, drove out the money changers from the temple and uh, where did they go but right to the Texas legislature, right? Um, so the first controversy that was a real political consequence was that um, the state had to charge private banks. Uh, what they did was they ended up chartering one called the Texas Railroad Navigation and Banking Company. Well, it turns out that the charter members of this organization were two eminent politicians uh, who were also serving in the Texas Senate. So the interplay has been pretty profound for a lot of years. Oh, and now we're, now we're concerned, and I think rightfully, 
about fundraising during special session. Yeah. <laughs> Small yeah. comparatively. Uh, True, yeah, but the same problems remain, though. Yeah, so let's fast forward into 1876 and forward. Yeah, so the the legislature, obviously, after Reconstruction, with um, a lot of um, difficult political issues, the trouble was that they had to navigate um, through kind of post-Civil War politics, and although the Civil War ends in terms of active gunfire, it doesn't end in terms of the political um, uh, kind of residue that resulted. So the state has to rewrite the Constitution to be able to um, kind of... Um, accommodate what is thought to be kind of a, a new way of looking at government. If we thought the government of the republic was small and designed to be minimal, then the current constitution, the constitution of 1876, was designed to be even smaller. So the goal was basically to contract um, the executive branch um, and to make it so diverse in terms of the electoral um, um, uh, connections that that it was fragments across several different offices. Um, the legislature itself... Um, had to be minimized so that, um, you know, they had these sessions which were brief and infrequent, and that's the way typically Texas has liked it. I mean, there have been efforts afoot since that time to try to expand the number of years that were met or the time it, that the legislature meets, and they've always been met with uh, rejection from voters. So voters typically like this kind of, you know, small government, and that's the way that it was designed in that Constitution. And that's where we pick up on meeting every other year for six months. And people may not understand that the legislature only meets every two years for 140 days. I said six months, excuse me. Uh, What was that model based off of, Dr. Roddinghouse? Well, so other state legislatures had done something similar. They had had uh, kind of limited time. And so what Texas decided to do was to kind of follow suit. Um, Specifically, they followed suit of other southern um, by the southern states that had done that. The kind of context here is that there was a real reaction to Reconstruction in the South, which was a very heavily handed federal intervention where essentially governors had a far-reaching power. Um, the governor um, um, at the time, Edmund Davis, is probably the most hated governor in the history of the state, in part because of his position as um, governor during a time when the authority to be able to act was so profound. Um, and so that, that this was really a reaction to what was happening in the federal level all across the South. So Texas decided basically to kind of follow the lead of other Southern states who limited government across the board on all institutions. Do you know how many states still keep a 140-day model every two years? I do. Um, no state is... Um, on par with Texas when it comes to the infrequency of both meeting and the number of days they meet. Um, Most states have an annual session that's fairly short. Um, It varies a lot, actually, by state. Um, uh, And so it's um, definitely something that's unique to each. But Texas is really unique and rare in that they have a short session that meets only once every other year. There aren't many other states that have that few, like, total legislative days over the course of, like, a two- or three-year period. And the intention, and I'm talking as a layman, you correct me if I'm Mm -hmm. wrong, but I've always understood the intention was that you had citizen uh, legislators that had jobs that had to go Mm -hmm. by wagon, uh, by horse, to the legislature, 
So we're only going to do, we're going to keep this limited model, but this is going to be the method we're going to meet for these 140 days so that you don't miss out on your crops every single year. You aren't gone for months at a time uh, every year. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, the goal is to keep the legislature in check through frequent elections, but also through infrequent meetings. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic, right? The less that we actually meet, the better. Um, and this is a model that Texans like, um, and generally speaking, that's supposed to keep the the legislature close to the people. Um, even, frankly, the every, once every two years for 140 days seems like a lot for people. There's an old saying that says that, um, you know, no man, woman, or child is safe during the meeting of the Texas legislature, and a lot of people still feel that way. Um, there's a kind of real negative pall over a lot of what happens. Um, some of it is, frankly, self-enforced <laughs> and, self, um, and self-imposed, um, but some of it is um, just kind of um, uh, kind of aberration or uh, it's kind of an outsized um, stereotype of the way the legislature acts. Yeah, so there at the end of the 19th century, mm. I know today people who follow Texas politics closely know that the legislature is, n- the legislature is not meeting, but it kind of is because we've got all these mm. select committees out. We've got these meetings going on. You know, Lyle Larson was on the program last week. He uh, – was up in the panhandle and then you've got people who are down on the coast and and all over the state but at the same time uh, this time of year every every other year we're waiting for a letter from the governor that kicks off the legislative budget board and then they meet leading up to so even though it's not technically in session the legislature is at least halfway in session uh, this time uh, every couple of years. It, was that the case in the beginning? Would they just start from scratch on day one? Or would they yeah. have a bunch of meetings and process leading up to the convening of the legislature? No, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I mean, the Texas legislature uh, is the most busy, uh, most time-consuming part-time job you'll ever have. And I think you're exactly right that there really isn't time off. I mean, they technically don't work full-time, but they definitely are on point. And even when they're not, you know, policymaking or, uh, you know, fact-finding, they're out campaigning. So it is really a full-time job in a way. Um, Speaking of full-time jobs, I mean, part of the reason this is the way that it is is that the Speaker of the House has kind of organized and coordinated the legislature. That actually occurs about the time you're talking about, about 1900, a little after 1900 in the progressive era. Um, This was an era that kind of brought in Teddy Roosevelt and um, kind of finishes with um, a kind of global sense that the nation should invest more in um, infrastructure and um, should be more kind of far thinking in terms of um, um, food safety uh, and many other kinds of issues. So um, on on your question about whether it was always this way, it hasn't always been this way. It wasn't until about the turn of the last century that we found that uh, the speaker was really kind of developing these platforms. Um, Part of it is because um, the speaker itself isn't really um, a kind of provision of the Constitution, right? We fight a lot about speakers now. We fight a lot about Speaker Strauss now, um, uh, outgoing Speaker Strauss now. But uh, early on, the House um, really hadn't organized itself in a 
way that would let it be a modern institution. Uh, and so that role has really evolved over the years. In fact, for early speakers, the position was so inconsequential. The first five people who um, held the post did so in one legislative session. <laughs> so mm-hmm. no one wanted to stick around long enough even to get like their official portrait painted. Um, and that's how little um, speakers mattered. Um, but eventually, of course, we have a more modern legislature. And although they don't meet that much, they do have a kind of more modern and um, kind of complete sense of how to conduct themselves as an institution. So, Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, here in our five-port series, you're listening to part one. The others will be up on our other side of Texas Apple podcast. Uh, pay, pay has always been the same for House members and mm-hmm. senators? It's been, it's been the same in terms of the two branches, um, but not the same as, as it's set right now, right now. Outset at seventy two hundred dollars per month. Um, it's it's been lower. Seventy two hundred dollars per year. Per, per per year. Sorry, yeah, per yeah, year. Yeah. Um, it's been um, it's been up and down. Um, there have been fights about legislator pay. Um, there was one governor who was unhappy with the legislature um, and so decided to start to talk about how they get paid too much. Well, the legislature turned around and said, if you think we get paid too much, we're going to make sure you get paid as much as we get paid. <laughs> so they reduced the governor's salary to the salary that they were getting paid. Hmm. Um, it's always been a point of contention. Um, in fact, there's a great 538 article that came out um, about a year ago that compared state legislative pay and Texas, not surprisingly, ranks quite low, but that's on purpose. The goal is that, again, that the legislature doesn't need that much, and this shouldn't be what is a full-time job. Um, and again, the irony is that it really is a full-time job. We just don't pay it like that. Yeah, especially when you're in perpetual campaigning. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are perks, and do you know times when uh, different, like, health care benefits and different benefits came involved in the legislature? You know, this doesn't come about until, you know, the late 70s and 80s. Um, there's, there's a period also in the U.S. Congress when the goals of both parties were really to retain good people. The problem of turnover has been consistent in the Texas legislature. Um, I haven't done a careful analysis of the early years, but my guess would be that the turnover was so constant that you couldn't keep people in office so that they learned enough so that they could come back and do something positive for their district or for their constituents. So what one perk, like you say, is that um, you know you could get some you know ancillary benefits. Uh, the same is true for the U.S. Congress. Um, of course, it's highly politically fraught, and members don't want to vote on you know something that looks like it's giving themselves a pay raise. Uh, that's something that um, wouldn't sell well now, and frankly, has never sold that well. Yeah, give me give me three themes. I guess I'd be asking you to repeat mm-hmm. three things, but. Three things that people can take away that the legislature started this way, its origins started here, and they are uh, they are veins that continue up to 2018. Mm, good. Good question. Um, I would say one big thing is the difference in terms of parties. Like I said, um, early parties tended to be either kind of nationally driven um, on narrow issues or were based upon whether or not you like or dislike Sam Houston. Um, we reify Sam Houston now, so it's hard to think that, that he could be objected to. But back then, there were some serious political differences between he, especially in Mirabeau B. Lamar, who succeeded uh, Houston as president of the republic. So that growth of the party system is really one big thing. 
Another big thing is the change in terms of leadership. Now, we think of the early house as being kind of chaotic affair, and there are lots of great funny stories about how people would literally like tackle each other and during points of order would have fist fights. And so there's a lot of great stories um, that frankly continue up all the way to the 50s. But early on, it was really just chaos. Um, and so um, one of the things that the speakership did was to really bring in some structure to that. So that was a big factor, especially in the 1920s. Speakers became more ideological. They had a position and a platform and winning um, wasn't just about personality. So that was a big change as well. Um, and I think that um, the, the final change is just um, the general structure of things. Um, now things are much more organized. The committee system is much more consistent, and so they're able to get things done in a hurry, which wasn't something that was true of the early Congress, but also they can continuously plan, which is something that a big state like mm-hmm. needs. Okay. Well, I'm going to reserve questions, and we're going to end our first installment there, get into governor and then lieutenant governor and the senate uh, dr ronnie house thank you for this we'll look forward to the next one absolutely if you haven't climbed up to enchanted rock drink a cold shiner down and In part two of our Legislature 101 series with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse at the University of Houston, specializes in the presidency and Texas politics, and uh, you can follow him along on Twitter at BG, excuse me, B-J-R-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-U-S at what I just said. I won't say it all over again there, Dr. Roddenhouse. So uh, part two, what we want to get into is the governor of Texas and the origins there and then into the present date. Uh, What distinguishes a Texas governor from other governors? The Texas governor is as powerful as the Texas governor can make it. And I guess that's one of the biggest differences between the Texas governor and, and other governors. Um, people who study um, the governors like I do can point to some um, specific um, powers that governors have across the, the whole country. And one thing we can note is that the Texas governor tends to be on the low side of the actual powers that um, that a governor could yield. So um, it's definitely the case that Texas governors are not as powerful. But the difference is that when a governor can um, get a um, a kind of central theme of, um, of of a policy idea or can bend the legislature to his or her will, they can maximize their power. So that said, the governor is really only as powerful as the governor themselves makes it. Yeah, so this continues from part one, the Texan um, aversion to centralized government and to essentially limit the powers of the governor. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah and so that, that's a big factor in, in sort of analyzing how governors operate. Um, to be honest, like looking at any governor, you could kind of envision them um, not doing well because their ability to be able to organize the executive branch and to be able to push the legislature are pretty minimal. Um, what they do is and how they do it and do it well is through kind of a use of um, kind of persuasion. And that's obviously something that, it's, um, that has to be um, um, sort of only what they can bring to the table. Um, of the first 12 people to serve as president or governor, seven of them participated in the revolution. We had some really big personalities, right? Sam Houston, Mirabeau B. Lamar, the, um, you know, the individuals who um, were kind of glorified as being, you know, the architects, the, you know, parentage of Texas. Um, and was um, mitigated fairly seriously by both the Constitution of the Republic um, as well as the Constitution of 1876 after the Civil War. So like we talked about in the last um, segment, the Constitution itself limits the executive's ability uh, to be able to do a lot of things um, because in part there was a real um, sort of fear of centralized government and a real anger with how the governors that immediately preceded the Civil War had acted. So the governor then became, in the words of Randall Woods, who is a historian um, on the South, that the Texas governor essentially was no more than a peer among equals. That's not the way we think of chief executives, but for most of the, the governorships um, and that we have seen, that's tended to be the case. Hmm. So tell me, I've got questions, but go ahead and tell me something else yeah. I need to know. I would say um, just to kind of list a couple of ways in which this occurred over the years and how governors became more powerful, I'll, I'll list a couple of governors people may not have heard of. The first is Governor James Pinckney Henderson, who served as the first governor of Texas, actually, um, in 1846. Um, he was gaunt. Uh, he had a kind of angular face, looked a little bit like James Monroe. Um, he had a thin, grim mouth. Um, the legislature had set the foundations for Texas in a way that dealt with infrastructure problems like creating new counties and um, organization of state courts and, and developing a new state penitentiary. But um, Governor Pinckney sort of saw beyond that, and he saw a state that could um, kind of, given its location and given its natural resources, um, be um, a kind of beacon for the country. And so he was really the first modern governor um, to address substantive problems. Um, that is the need for a new school system, adequate kind of public buildings, uh, a state militia, and also to tackle the problem of debt and, and financing since the Lone Star State was broke at the time. Mm -hmm. um, here's a great fact, too, that I'll throw in here. Um, so this is, occurs at the point in time where war broke out between Mexico and the U.S. This is in the spring of 1846. Governor Henderson takes a leave of absence from the governorship to lead Texas troops into battle. So mm -hmm. um, it's hard to imagine the governor doing that now, but at the time it was sort of much more common. Uh, it gives us a sense, I think, for how Henderson, although kind of forgotten largely in history, was somebody who really uh, kind of shaped what the governorship could be. But, but since then, of course, there have been governors who have failed mightily for all kinds of different reasons, whether it be scandal or just lack of vision. Um, so it's, I think, a good sort of way to think about the governor as, again, sort of what they make it, right? They can make it something grand, and they can use it to their political advantage and for the good of Texas, or they can do very little, and things tend to sink into oblivion. And give me a couple who made it grand and a couple who completely botched it. 
Yeah, um, I would say um, I'm going to offer two people who made it grand. Um, one is another governor people don't talk much about, and that's um, um, Alicia Pease, who served uh, just before the Civil War uh, from 1853 to 1857. He kept Texas stable in a very unstable political time. Um, he signed the Common School Act, in which created the sort of system of public schools we now sort of think of today. Um, he also uh, signed the General Railroad Law Act of 1854, which was a grant to railroad companies to um, essentially um, to build railroads in the state, which it needed. The state was thought to be basically going to, you know, was going to be a major pass-through for the West, and Texas would basically Texas would basically rise or fall based upon, you know, the, its role as a hub in the nation. So this is a big issue. Um, nowadays, they probably call it corporate welfare, <laughs> right? But um, but it certainly at the time was something that the state needed. Um, he also engaged in um, a significant civil and criminal code re, um, redo which the state also needed. So, um, and after actually, so after he left the governorship, he, um, and after reconstruction came and went, he served as um, a pardon broker, somebody who would work with the governor at the time to kind of figure out, you know, who were, um, you know, people who were, could be counted on to be, you know, pulled the text back in the union. Um, he also attended the constitutional convention of 1866, which rewrote the constitution after the civil war. So he was somebody who we don't tend to think of a lot, but who, um, did a lot to kind of stabilize Texas before and after the civil war. Um, in terms of developing a modern governorship, Rick Perry is to me the most outstanding figure in this. Um, now love him or hate him in the politics aside, he developed um, a kind of series of practices that really pushed um, the governorship into a modern institution that we see today. Again, you know, it depends on who is governor and how they're willing to use that power, but he shaped the Texas governorship into a much more powerful governorship than he left it with. So that's something that not a lot of, um, not a lot of governors do. Um, some of the worst what, um, uh, have... Let me ask you oh, about... Sorry, okay, yeah, yeah. What, were, what yeah. were two things that he used to really bulk up that office? You know, the two that come to mind instantly are, um, actually I'll say three. Number one, a, a clear vision for sort of how to pursue um, legislative, uh, his legislative agenda. Um, and again, you know, like it or not like it, um, it was something that governors hadn't done as frequently. Um, you'd have to go back to, um, you know, um, sort of Alan Shivers to find a kind of ideologically um, sort of has developed a, um, a, a an outcome. Um, number two, the appointment power was huge. Obviously, he was in office for longer than anybody else, so he had more opportunities to do so, but that was a major factor. Um, and the third is that um, he called uh, many special sessions, and I think that there was a kind of sense that although the governorship obviously is a partner in the legislative process, he was really the one who was assigning um, you know, the, 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 the process. He was the one who was really deciding when to meet. And so I think that legislators in the time period Perry was governor kind of felt like they had to be on their game and they had to be ready to, to be able to jump into a special session. Um, special sessions are costly and politically they can be pretty risky, but um, you know, that's something that he really used to his, to his great effect. Hmm. Before you move into two poor examples hmm. of governors, let me just tell listeners that this audio is again, part two of a five part series. You can go to our Apple podcast and find uh, the texas legislature 101 series also be on other side of texas so give me two guys who really botched it who really screwed up 
I would say that the, probably the two that are, are pointed to as the worst are first Edmund Davis, who was um, the governor during Reconstruction. Um, he was um, a, a, one of the first Republicans, obviously, because um, uh, Reconstruction put Republicans back in office. Um, he had a centralized control over the appointment process, like all the way down to like state education committee officials. Um, at the time, it was not as organized as it is today, but it would be the equivalent to like basically appointing board members on like local boards of education. <laughs> like That mm-hmm. level of micro, people did not like that. So like we talked about, the Constitution in 1876 was changed to basically not allow that to happen. Um, the, he had uh, engaged in what some people called arbitrary taxation. So in the summer of 1871, there was a taxpayer convention that was assembled basically to challenge him on this issue. Um, and so he uh, was considered a radical Republican at what the does, time, they called them. Mm. What does arbitrary taxation mean? Well, um, part of it um, was that you know he had imposed certain kinds of taxes on certain kinds of goods, um, and it was thought that it wasn't vetted enough through a kind of proper channels. Mm. Um, it's no different than taxation, you know, debates today, right, where people, uh, you know, want to have a good reason for a certain kind of tax. In fact, much of the history of, uh, of Texas governors is trying to convince the legislature to find a certain tax. We think now of taxes as being abhorrent, and you know, no. Republican would raise taxes in that same way, but for almost every session for a good 50 years, taxes were raised. And so, um, again, this is part of the limitation the Constitution tries to set out to not give the governor power to be able to kind of um, do this at least unilaterally. Um, Davis um, did not want to leave office. So the election um, uh, occurs, um, and uh, Richard Koch is the, um, is the is chosen to be the winner in an unusual um, um, uh, effect. Um, and it, basically, Davis um, decides that he is going to stay in office, and so he literally barricades himself inside the Capitol building where the governor's office was at the time, uh, and he has to be, you know, kind of prodded out. Um, he appealed to the Grant administration of Washington to, um, you know, give him some um, um, some respite and to help him in this case. And Governor or President Grant basically said, you're on your own. So <laughs> eventually there, uh, uh, Koch and his followers were able to infiltrate the Capitol and uh, take command of government. But I think that um, that alone probably is enough to put him in the bad column. How, how, um, the other is... Um, go ahead. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, the other is um, uh, Lee Papio Daniel. Um, who, have you ever seen the movie... Um, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen mm-hmm. Brothers movie. Um, the Charles Durning character is basically the Papio Daniel character. Oh, or sorry, no, the, um, the person, Homer Stokes, the person running against um, the Charles Durning character is the kind of Papio Daniel character. Um, he's a reformer. He's a Democrat. Um, he ran a platform of the Ten Commandments, and the, his motto, he said, was the golden rule. Um, overall, that's not bad, but that's not much of a legislative agenda. Um, he promised to pay uh, $40 million in pensions, which was something that was unheard of at the time. That's a lot of money for the 1930s and 40s. Um, there was no support for this at all. The legislature had no concept of how they would find that money. Um, one of the things he did, too, when he was leaving office is he appointed uh, Andrew Jackson Houston to the Senate. This was after Morris Shepard died in 1941. Um, at the time, Andrew Jackson Houston was a descendant of Sam Houston. He was 71 years old. Um, he agreed um, um, to, uh, to, appoint Jack, to appoint Jackson Houston, um, and it was seen as a veiled opportunity for him to basically succeed his own appointee in the Senate, which eventually he did. The only race 
Lyndon Johnson ever lost was that 1941 Senate race to Pappy O'Daniel. Wow. And it was thought that widespread fraud was part of the story. Um, wow. Johnson eventually gets his later on through probably also fraudulent means. But um, yeah, so O'Daniel kind of goes down on so the now most we, ignominious list. Now we know where LBJ learned it. He, he learned right. it by losing the first time. There's no doubt <laughs> that LBJ reacted um, uh, when he ran uh, for the Senate in the same way that O'Daniel had. So turn about fair play, I guess. Wow. So we would be remiss here. Not People think about, if I said to most Texans, tell me about uh, a Texas political legacy, uh, Texas royalty, I would hear, I would hear several different names. Uh, I'd hear the Bushes, right? Uh, you go through lots of different folks. But what I won't hear much about is what I want to hear you talk about here is we're talking about the governor, and that's the Ferguson legacy, Ma and Pa Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I would put them probably close um, to O'Daniel on the list of, um, of bad operators. Um, it's a legacy factor, nonetheless. Course, <laughs> right? At least people are talking about you, right? I mean, they were in a similar um, um, era as O'Daniel. They were progressives. They were um, you know, looking for ways to help people. Uh, Paul Ferguson was elected on a kind of ticket to help the you know, kind of common man, um, some dire straits during the Depression. But it turns out that he mostly ends up kind of lining the pockets of his political cronies. Um, he ultimately was impeached for, um, it, it, at least on paper, for creating a kind of slush fund that wasn't um, accounted for in a way that was um, common at the time. And uh, that uh, ultimately led to his political downfall. He also ran afoul of the University of Texas. That's something that you don't want to do. <laughs> no legislature, no governor has had success running afoul of the University of Texas. And so this also didn't endear him to many. Um, he eventually he resigns because um, he is impeached. He is not removed from office, but rather impeached. The Senate passes a re- resolution saying, you know, don't come back. <laughs> we know we didn't. We know that we didn't ultimately remove you from office, but you are barred from running for governor again. Well... You know, he can't run, but his wife can run. So Ma Ferguson runs um, uh, you know, years later uh, and ultimately also ends up in her own scandals, pardon scandals in this case. She is basically trading um, pardons for, um, for money, and uh, that uh, ends up being uh, her downfall. Um, the slogans were great. They were um, along the lines of, um, you know, you know, me for Ma, I don't have a darn thing against Pa. So <laughs> the idea was you're going to get two for one. You're going to get two governors for one. A lot of people didn't like that. And ultimately she ends up um, losing in her uh, in a reelection bid. So I, if there is that taint on the Fergusons, how yeah. what's the story behind her political success or campaigning success? Yeah, I think part of it is that you know, Texas has always been a place where populism has a strong strain, and that was front and center during much of that era. So the success that she had and that O'Daniel had and that Paul Ferguson had were all connected to that kind of populism. Um, so a big part of, um, yeah, so a big part of the Democratic kind of philosophy at that time um, was that kind of cowboy populism. And that's what pulled a lot of the conservative 
people into the Democratic Party and kept them in the Democratic Party until, you know, the 1970s when the labels start to change and the Democratic Party becomes a party of, what do they call it, acid, abortions, and amnesty. So the label changes and sort of people begin to gravitate towards the Republican Party as the party that's the more, you know, kind of conservative populist party. Yeah. Okay. So I... I like my hobby stories about the hobby family. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the dynasty. I get it. The Bush is a dynasty. Yeah. But we need to talk about the Fergusons from time to time. I often have heard people say, if this state could survive the Fergusons, it can survive <laughs> fill in the blank. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, this is a resilient state, right? Give me Give me a couple of points to close out here with Governor, things that people who followed or just beginning to follow Texas politics ought to know about the governor? Yeah, I think number one um, is that, you know, governors in Texas aren't designed to be strong figures. So they're limited in terms of what they can do institutionally. So I always like to tell people, like, give them a break, right? There's only so much they can do because they don't have the powers other governors have to be able to appoint people like the attorney general and like, um, you know, comptroller, things like that. Um, We have um, limited powers within the scope of what they do. So that's one thing to consider when judging um, when judging um, governors. Um, another, though, is to, you know, consider how they run the administrations, right? So the fact that they um, have some control over uh, different boards and commissions suggests that there is some accountability there. I think that the accountability is attenuated because there's this perception the governor kind of stands alone, like they're in their own corner and everybody else, all the other elected officials in the executive branch kind of do their own thing. Um, I think the governor can and should be held accountable for some of these things. Um, the problem is people don't know where to draw that line. So understanding that the governor has some responsibility over what's happening in government is a big is a big factor here. Um, and finally, just you know, how does the governor use their power? I mean, are they persuasive? Um, um, are they uh, visionary? That's a big factor in terms of like not only deciding who you can vote for for governor, but also evaluating you know whether governors are successful or not. Yeah, one thing that I would be uh, that we ought to throw in here is. The governor's power, I think, so it could be, the argument could be made, the strongest form of governor, governor power is vetoing legislation. Yes. So there's yes. the negative. That's right. Yeah. There, and one thing the Texas governor has that the, you know, the president doesn't have is a line item veto. So governors have been fairly circumspect at, you know, kind of scissoring off specific pieces of um, funding that they don't necessarily like. Um, and there have been recent rules that basically give the governor a lot of more authority than, than the governors in the past have used to be able to you know, kind of scalpel off funding that they don't really like from a, from a budget. So that's a pretty serious tool that um, the governors can use after the fact. Yeah, I think they call that negative incentives. Is the that's word. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or what some people call the governor's gift. Yeah, there you go. I worked the rigs from three to midnight On the Corpus Christi Bay I'd get off and drink till daylight Sleep the morning away
in part three of our Texas Legislature 101 series with Dr. Branding Roddinghouse at the University of Houston, we want to talk about the lieutenant governor in the Senate. Now, the Texas Legislature is bicameral uh, house and a Senate, and the Senate's oftentimes called the upper chamber and sometimes called by dirtier names, but the president of the Senate is the lieutenant governor. And Dr. Roddinghouse, I just want to kick off here. The lieutenant governor has to be, the office itself has to be a marquee of state government, Texas state government, as compared to other states because of the power involved in the role of lieutenant governor. Is that a correct assessment? That's very correct. Yeah, that's um, the the lieutenant governor's office came about because the goal of the Constitution of 1876, which is our current Constitution, tried to kind of bifurcate and um, and diversify where executive power was. So the concern was that too much was being given to governors or chief executives. So the goal of the Constitution of 1876 was to give that power across multiple different offices. The office that rivals the governor in terms of power and authority is the lieutenant governor. This is ironic because lieutenant governors in other states don't have the same kinds of powers that they have in Texas. Bill Hobby, who was a former lieutenant governor, once joked that the only thing that lieutenant governors have on their agenda is to and ask about his or her health. <laughs> it's often referred to some, as a got a spare tire on government, right? You hope you never have to use it, but you need it to be there in case you have to have oh. uh, it to be pumped up. Yeah, to ask um, the governor about his or her. Okay, got it. Kind of yeah, cut his out or her health. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the goal um, of Texas was to kind of diversify the um, was to diversify the executive power in the state. So. Lieutenant governors in Texas are historically powerful, but most states don't have quite that much power. Um, the lieutenant governor's office itself reaches back to colonial government um, when the goal was to basically create a governor and waiting to maintain public confidence in the continuity of government. New York State was the first to have a lieutenant governor uh, in 1777. That They were the first also to put the lieutenant governor in charge of their state senate. Um, Typically, lieutenant governors are kind of understudy to the governor. Only about four or five states in the union have a lieutenant governor that is as strong as Texas has. I created a little power index that basically is a statistical combination of the different powers that governors have or lieutenant governors have. Um, and only Washington and Vermont and a couple of other southern states have powerful lieutenant governors the way that Texas does. Hmm. So let's get into those powers that accentuate mm-hmm. the office. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, some of the powers um, are, are, are pretty profound. I mean, as you say, the first thing is that, you know, they're able to essentially run an entire chamber of the legislature. So in principle, they'd be able to um, have uh, their legislative outcomes um, as as firmly 
uh, rooted as possible. Um, they're a member of several um, you know, boards and commissions that are critical to the state. Um, so they're part of the of budget board, which we mentioned in, in uh, one of the prior segments, was an important factor in developing um, the state budget. They're also on the legislative redistricting board if uh, the state um, can't agree on um, on the legislative lines, and then the redistricting board is supposed to handle it, although lately the courts have been handling it, so uh, they haven't uh, kind of met that much. Um, so that's a lot of power that lieutenant governors have. Um, this gives them tremendous authority over a kind of political agenda as well as the legislative agenda that the state uh, the state engages in. Hmm. So let's uh, bring up one lieutenant governor for just a moment, and uh, somebody who I think has has developed that well got into that role and then really capitalized on that role later in his political career and that's coke stevenson uh Mm -hmm. talk about let's talk about coke for just a moment but then i should say governor stevenson for a moment but uh let's let's talk about what he did in that office as well yeah um stevenson was one of the first kind of modern Lieutenant Governors. Um, he's somebody who um, created that office um, as, and carved it out of stone. Lieutenant Governors have always had several powers, at least by virtue of the Constitution. Those powers, though, are only as effective as the Senate will allow. So if the Senate wanted to, they could trim the powers of the Lieutenant Governor back. Um, to get back to our earlier question, in terms of being the legislative leader for the Senate, that means they have the power to be able to um, you know, decide where legislation goes. They can choose who goes on what committee. So the kind of reins they have over the legislative process in the Senate gives them a tremendous amount of power. And Stevenson was one of the first to really um, sort of organize that in a way that um, made some people unhappy. Um, part of the business of being a leader in this is making tough choices and either you're with leaders like that or you're against them and mm-hmm. that creates um creates some friction um he was one of the um you know I mean, he's kind of famously known both when he was speaker as well as when he was uh in the governor's mansion and lieutenant governor's office um as being somebody who wanted to make the budget trim keep taxes low or non-existent he famously opposed wartime rationing because he said it was bad for the Texas economy. So he really developed um, an, 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 an wow. organization around the um, around the lieutenant governor's office that was pretty profound. Um, I throw, in addition to him in there, Alan Shivers, who was another conservative Democrat, what we called Redeemer Democrats after the Civil War. Redeemer Democrats were those kind of really conservative Democrats who were reacting to some of the um, what they were considered more liberal tendencies of the, the Republican Party. Um, especially in, in terms of inclusion and voting. Um, so Alan Shivers was a Redeemer Democrat as well. Um, he also advanced a pretty serious legislative agenda for Texas. He created uh, to administer um, state hospitals and schools. Um, they adopted the Gilmer Aiken School Law, which is basically a kind of modern school system that we know today. Um, created a water group um, to um, sort of check to see if waters were being water was being used um, efficiently. Um, anti-lynching laws, uh, pay increases for state employees. Um, so there's a lot of legislation in the period of the um, Stevenson and Shivers years that uh, kind of identify the powers and scope of the political authority of the modern lieutenant governor in Texas. Yeah, so we're talking 30s and 40s there just for mm-hmm. for reference. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, okay, I know you've got things lined up. I've got lots of questions. Give us a couple more there, Professor, as we sit here in, yeah. your, in your virtual online course. 
Yeah, exactly. No, I love it, right? Um, yeah, until about the 1950s, the Senate really didn't do that much um, in terms of leadership. Um, it was said that the Senate calendar was so sparse that the parliamentarian just kept um, the bills that were being filed in a file box at the rostrum. Right? Hmm. We know that's different than today, where uh, obviously they, they do a lot. Um, the third play between the House and Senate is really interesting, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but that really does, I think, define the the kind of friction of the modern political scene. So the fact that they have such different time horizons and they're elected in, um, in different contexts makes the House and the Senate um, in, in some ways at odds, even if you have shared party unity. Um, the sort of person who I think kind of put the cherry on top of the Sunday in terms of the lieutenant governor's role as a political official as opposed to just somebody who kind of leads the chamber and goes where the body wants it to is Ben Barnes. Um, ben Barnes um, was a Democrat. Um, he was LBJ's protege. Um, he was somebody who worked hard to build consensus, but also with a kind of political outcome in mind. He was the first politician actually in Texas to win more than two million votes statewide. Um, he eventually ends up in um, 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 in um, in the aftermath of Sharpstown, which was a kind of stock swap scandal in the 1970s, mm-hmm. as many Democrats did. Um, and so Barnes, um, who's actually from up in your neck of the woods, um, and really, I think, makes it a political position that we know today. Yeah. Was it uh, Comanche County, I believe? Mm-hmm. That's it's, right. I think uh, that's right. Yeah. Where Ben Barnes comes from. So, so whenever you say this, and it seems like to me, in listening to you now, and a couple of these parts of the series leaders who have political outcomes in mind uh, is that something that lieutenant governors since shivers and stevenson have done have decided yeah. that they will have political outcomes they won't just preside over this chamber they'll run the politics of the state or at least try to yeah i mean that's a big factor um one of the reasons i think that there's more political conflict now than there was in the 1970s because these institutions, these leaders have invested themselves in a kind of specific party outcome, a specific political outcome. So the modern speakership in particular is a good example of this, um, where you've got um, individuals um, raising money like um, 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 Billy Clayton and Gib Lewis, who were speakers in the 1970s, um, 1980s, started raising money for candidates and started to become kind of a political hub of their parties. Um, um, Tom Craddock uh, was called an unpaid party consultant uh, during the time before he was speaker. He spent time recruiting candidates and helping with media and mailers and um, generally trying to kind of organize the party around a certain set of political ideas. The goal then and the outcome was that a lot of legislators now owe their success to that person. So the same could be said for Dan Patrick now, right? The campaigning that he's doing is in part designed to be able to, um, you know, gain favor among people who, um, you know, are, are looking to him, his help for re-election or election. So that really drives, I think, a lot of the interchamber actions. But of course, then that has an effect on what happens outside the chamber. Yeah. Okay. Um Give me, give me a couple more things on Lieutenant Governor that we ought to know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Lieutenant Governor, um, you know, the, the role has been fairly minimal over the years. Um, uh, and um, you definitely see that role expanding with, with uh, Dan Patrick. I would say that Dan Patrick has, 
unified the power of the lieutenant governor faster than any lieutenant governor in history. There have been some pretty significant lieutenant governors over time. Um, my favorite is um, is um, Bob Bullock, who was a conservative Democrat. He served under Ann Richards and, well, I shouldn't say under, he served with Ann Richards, right, <laughs> given the way the system works, as well as with Governor Bush. Um, he um, was a cantankerous man. He loved to swear and smoke and drink, and he kept a file that was basically a hit list of people <laughs> uh, that you know he uh, would use as a hammer against you if you decided you might want to vote against him for something. So um, he was really um, uh, of the kind of sort where it was going to be you know his way or the highway. Um, uh, Dan Patrick is to some degree like that too. I don't think he has a, a file of you know things on individuals, but it's definitely the case that um, that uh, he, he's able to kind of politically will the chamber to do his bidding. Um, the contrast to that is um, Lieutenant Governor's Hobby and Ratliff. Um, um, I mentioned Bill Hobby earlier, who said that the uh, only job of Lieutenant Governor was to call the governor and ask about their health. Uh, and Bill Ratliff, who served very temporarily after Rick Perry was elevated to governor when George Bush was elected president, um, their goal was to kind of what I call the let the Senate work its will model. That is, um, allow for the body to decide kind of what they want and figure out how to help them get there. And that's a very different kind of mindset than the one that, say, um, Bob Bullock or Dan Patrick has. So there are different ways to attack the role of lieutenant governor. Um, ultimately, though, the power is there, and strong lieutenant governors are able to really push their agenda in a way that they can in other states. So lieutenant governor presides over the Senate. Let's switch over to the Senate for just a moment. Uh, yeah. About uh, so, thirty-one senators, and each has roughly eight hundred, just north of eight hundred thousand people mm -hmm. in their districts. Uh, yeah. How does politics play historically in the House versus the Senate? Uh, like, I'll give an mm -hmm. example. House members really get lit up by superintendents and other, you know, public. Mm. I'll call superintendents public officials. Uh, sheriffs, different entities within counties and cities, but senators oftentimes are immune. You know, a superintendent can say, mm -hmm. I'm coming after you, and a senator might just roll his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, the the design of, of the, the bicameral system was to allow for the House to be the chamber that was closer to the people. So, as you said, the number of representatives um, is more, and the number of people they represent is in the House is fewer. Um, so the goal is that it's supposed to be connected to people. So, yeah, they might get a call from, you know, their local school board member, um, and that's something that's going to be useful and helpful, um, you know, to be able to guide the, their thinking. Um, the Senate maybe has a little bit more immunity. Their time horizons are slightly different in terms of election, right? The senators are elected every four years, House members every two years. So their um, enterprise is affected by that to a significant degree. Um, in terms of the structural differences, too, I think there's some importances, important differences that give um, the, the House a lot, in some ways, a lot less flexibility. Um, so in terms of the way that it's organized, um, and the House is much more top-down. In fact, um, the House organized this process, like I said, around the kind of progressive era, say 1910, 1920. Speaker Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the Texas House before he was Speaker of the U.S. House, um, had kind of always served as one term as Speaker in Texas, but um, was able to kind of sort of understand how to 
organize the chamber in a way that they didn't in the, in the in the Senate. So not until the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s did you see the Senate really develop rules to give the lieutenant governor the authority to do what the Speaker of the House was doing in the uh, in, in the in the other other chamber for the past 30 years. So the organization occurs earlier in the House. Um, you also see. Um, uh, like I said, a lot more top-down power from the Speaker to organize committees and a lot earlier. Um, the Senate is much more individualistic than the House. And what I mean by that is that the rules require today that three-fifths of the senators agree to consider legislation. It's called a blocker bill. Unless that blocker bill is removed and agreed to be removed by three-fifths of the senators, then it is in place, and there can be no debate or discussion of that. It used to be two-thirds before Dan Patrick um, helped to mm-hmm. make that change. Um, so the goal 20 was votes. Basically, oh, you you yes, have exactly. to have 20 yeah. votes to get something to the floor, and yeah. now they call it the three-fifths rule. Yes. Yeah, and so, I mean, the, so then you can imagine sort of from that how the individual matters more in the Senate than in the House. Not not to say that it's like a value judgment or something, but your individual vote matters more. Um, Nowadays, it doesn't matter as much because the Republicans generally, you know, are able to um, make um, their uh, own agenda and they're able to sort of get past that fairly easily. But in the past, it hasn't been the case. And it took a lot to get to that point, that first two-thirds and now three-fifths. So it wasn't the case that the Senate was as sort of organized efficiently um, as it used to be. That's part of the reason I say that um, Dan Patrick is one of the more um, sort of consequential lieutenant governors in history because he's able to sort of run the Senate like the House runs. There's a great story. Um, A young reporter asked um, 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 Speaker or Lieutenant Governor Ramsey um, when he was in power, when the Senate comes to order. And Ramsey replied without blinking, young man, the Senate of the state of Texas never comes to order. It just meets. (laughs) It's a good way of saying that for a long time, the Senate didn't have that kind of organizational structure, but now they do. He is Branding Rodding House, and he is at the University of Houston. Knows a thing or two, as you can tell. Follow him on Twitter. It's BJ Rodding House on Twitter, right? It's, That's correct, yeah. yeah. B-J-R-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-U-S. Dr. Rodding House, thank you. We look forward to part four coming up, and we'll get into the house more in depth. Let your Wear something pretty Don't you know How you make us both look
in our fourth part I was just of this Texas Legislature 101 series with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse versus Houston. We want to talk about the Texas House of Representatives, a body that has 150 members, a body that is led by one member from the body itself, and a body that Dr. Roddinghouse knows a lot about. Uh, give us a little overview, just give us four let's start with four things that people need to know about the texas house just so far as structure and then we can get into the dynamics of it yeah well the first is that um the number of people obviously creates um um, a a difficulty in terms of getting everybody on the same page so the 150 members it can be an unruly bunch. Some people have referred to this as a circus. Some people have said that it's like the big top, um, but no matter how you cut it, there's a lot of individuals with a lot of opinions about what to do. So how to organize that. So what they do um, is effectively create a party structure and then a kind of top-down structure from the Speaker of the House to organize the individual efforts. Now, this is going to create some friction because if you are in a position where you have to say that a certain person will be on a certain committee, a certain bill will or will not be, um, uh, you know, passed, uh, or, or would the right committee that you'd like. Um, those kinds of things make enemies very quickly. And so leaders in the House have to balance the needs of the rest of the of the coalition. Um, one of the things that um, some of the more successful uh, of the speakers have done has been to essentially try to allow for the members to have an easier time representing their district. This is one of the things I, I like Pete Laney for, and I know you're a big Pete Laney fan. Um, Pete Laney once said that the job of the speaker was to um, make, each member, uh, make each member's life easier by uh, letting them represent their district better. So the goal is basically to create legislation which would um, be appeasing to most people, um, even if it was something that was contentious. Um, so most speakers who have gone in that route have been successful. Those who have gone the more autocratic route have tended to have pretty short uh, health, uh, pretty short um, lives in terms of their their political careers. Yeah. So the speaker elected by the House itself, and. I assume from the very beginning, the speaker's been elected that way, Dr. Roddinghouse? Yeah, that's correct. Um, they've always been chosen from the chamber. Um, the ways in which they've done it has been slightly different. Um, you know, now we've debated, the Republicans are debating about whether or not they would have an internal vote before they had an external vote, right? Um, and there is a controversy politically about that, but also just functionally about whether or not if you agree to vote for somebody before the floor votes in a way that's prescribed by the rules, if that's considered a kind of legislative bribe, um, these legal questions are going to have to get kind of teased out um, or not, depending on how things go. But um, the process then hasn't always been the same, but the, um, the generally speaking, that structure has been the same. Which causes some controversy. And today there's controversy about why the speaker... And I'm going to ask a sub-question here. I'm assuming around the 1940, like in the last uh, the last part we did, we talked about the emergence of Coach Stevenson and uh, Alan Shivers at the lieutenant governor and the Senate side. But I assume that the House got more organized around that time as well. Uh, the yeah. question today is, why is the Speaker of the House so powerful, and yet he's not been elected by 
citizens of Texas, only yeah. members of the House. I, mean, I should say they, yeah, not think, just he. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take the second question first, and that is, you know, why is it the case that we don't elect a speaker kind of nationwide or statewide? Um, part of it is because the goal of leadership was to um, allow for that person to lead just in the chamber. Uh, we didn't see a speaker who had overtly party-connected political goals until, you know, the 1980s, 1990s, and really through kind of Tom Craddock, like I had mentioned in our last session. So um, that's really the point where the party and the politics begin to kind of link together. Um, that's not to say that ideology didn't matter for a lot of these uh, speakers, because it did, and that was something that became more common in the progressive era. So at that point, people, speakers became more kind of appreciated or more supported because of their ideological position. But it wasn't so much the case that, like, you would link external party effects to internal legislative party control until 1980s, 1990s. So um, it's a really good question. Um, ultimately, the, um, you know, that would be something, frankly, that would be consistent with the way the Constitution was written to sort of diversify the sources of authority and power across the state, but that's not the way that um, it was organized. Um, on the second question about, or on the first question, rather, about um, how this kind of centralization came about, um, the most consequential speaker in history was probably Coke Stevenson, who they called Calculating Coke. Uh, he served as speaker in, from 1933 to 1937. He was the first speaker to be reelected to the speakership. This is important not only because it was the first time it happened, but also because it showed that he understood how to organize the legislature in a way that benefited his particular ideology. So like I said, he was... Um, he was a Redeemer Democrat, so he was, he was conservative all the way through his entire political career. Um, his second term, in fact, became a kind of proxy battle for control of the Democratic Party. This was a point in time where the New Deal was coming into effect. A lot of the conservative Democrats were very uncomfortable with Franklin Roosevelt's approach to kind of this big centralized government that was spending a lot of money, right? That's the two things that, you know, conservatives don't like. Now, Republicans. Back then, it was the conservative Democrats, what we called the Texas regulars. Um, that, at that point, the party, the Democratic Party was still pretty much unified, but Stevenson represented a kind of conservative wing of the party that was more cautious in approaching. Um, um, I don't know why they called him Calculating Coke exactly. I think it was in part because um, the stories that were told about him um, uh, 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 sort of imply that he had a kind of very calm demeanor and um, would oftentimes use his pipe as a gavel instead of <laughs> the gavel. So Ben Barnes reports that he would basically wrap his pipe on the dais instead of the gavel, and he said that that was more effective at getting people's attention than the gavel. So he commanded the kind of um, uh, the, the will of the chamber in a way that probably no speaker had until that point, and maybe even since then. Um, his uh, goals were to create a kind of modern Texas, especially through um, modern budgeting process. Um, he was very cautious in terms of how he wanted to spend money. He was, um, like I said earlier, he was opposed to rationing. Um, he was also opposed to sales and tax increases to pay for programs. Or um, there's one particular moment where he, um, there was an imbalance in pension checks, and the governor asked him to help to move some money that was set aside for road construction into paying for the pensions. And um, and Stevenson said, no, he wouldn't do that. So it was a very kind of fixed, uh, very kind of narrow um, vision in terms of spending. But he really kind of represented that strong 
speaker that we know of today. Hmm. So the Gib Lewis's, the Laney's, the Strauss's all have a volume of uh, Coke Stevenson on their yes, exactly. Shelf. Yeah. They uh, should, um, because yeah, he was he was central to the modern speakership. So, with was Laney in some ways a correction that because I don't see him as a party outcome sort of speaker. I see him as yeah. trying to try. I'm sure that there are horror stories out there about Laney's people coming after you, but uh, I hadn't heard those before. Uh, would his speakership, and I believe Lewis served five terms preceding mm-hmm. Pete Laney, right? And then, mm-hmm. okay, and then you had Craddock, and then five with uh, with Strauss. Uh, was Laney's speakership, uh, how did that guide the legislature as a whole at that point in time? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, Laney definitely was um, a kind of speaker who felt like um, that you would have to kind of balance the needs of the chamber with the political outcomes that they would otherwise engage in. So um, it is definitely the case that um, speakers tend to be a, a product of their era. So he was somebody who served in the legislature at a time where there was a serious transition between the uh, parties, right? So um, until, you know, 2000 and uh, 2001, there was basically a split, right? And uh, up after the redistricting and after the elections that resulted from that, um, there was a kind of change, and you saw Republicans take control. So Laney was a kind of last um, in that um, moment of um, kind of compromise, like pure compromise. Um, he also was distinguished because he, unlike several of his predecessors, didn't end up in serious legal trouble <laughs> or having to resign because um, there was some major controversy. Um, Gib Lewis had ethics troubles um, for which he was indicted. Um, uh, Billy Clayton uh, was also indicted, eventually acquitted um, of uh, similar bribery um, scandals. He was caught um, taking a bribe, uh, which he said was um, an accident or which he was going to uh, take the money and give it back later um, because it would be embarrassing to turn them down <laughs> at that moment. Um, Gus Mutcher, before that, a couple of um, the speakers before that, was, of course, wrapped up in the Sharpstown scandal, was indicted, and eventually um, he was acquitted. But um, there's a long history of speakers using power and uh, influence, but then paying the price for it. Um, Pete Laney was one of the few that didn't, that really was able to kind of guide the chamber in a way that um, probably needed to. I mean, no matter how you think about it politically, right, whether you're Republican or Democrat, like the, the goal of the speaker um, is generally speaking to execute the will of the, of, of the House. And that's something that Laney did in a time where that wasn't so easy to figure out, right? You had a real contention, uh, you know, conservative Republicans coming in, you had conservative Democrats and you had liberal Democrats trying to figure out what the will of the House was at that point in time was not easy. Yeah. And for reference, that's essentially the 1990s and mm-hmm. a big upheaval in Texas, the emergence of George W. Bush and uh, several different factors. But I think pragmatism, even though I think Laney would have been knowing him personally, he would have been pragmatic in the role. But the context, certainly you're right, product of his time, uh, he really didn't have any other decision uh, than to yeah. be pragmatic at that stage. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things he did, too, that was really um, important was that, you know, he developed a kind of series of rules that gave the House 
kind of breathing room in terms of passing legislation. So we look at this 140-day legislative process as being kind of whirlwind, right? I mean, it really flies by. Well, before Laney, um, really, the rules didn't allow for enough time to really process and understand the legislation that was being put through. For for those people who haven't paid attention to the legislature, like, you can go to the legislature online, and you can just kind of go and see how many bills are filed. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of bills filed. Well, getting through all these and making sure they all get their due is a really complicated thing, and it gets even more complicated when you're under time pressure. So one of the things Laney did was essentially to kind of develop these series of stopgap um, um, kind of hurdles that would allow for a kind of pausing point where they, the goal was to basically stop and think, right? Um, I think it was actually uh, Sam uh, Rayburn who, when he was a member of the Texas House and Speaker of the Texas House, said the smartest thing a legislature can do is to ask the question or to say the statement, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> like, let's stop and think about what we're doing before we do it. And Laney established rules that let that happen. Um, one of the things that uh, Sam Rayburn actually, um, before we move on to a different point if you want, um, is that he, he said in his first term, his first session as speaker, he said that he was able to, quote, muddle through by God, by desperation, and by ignorance. Um, that kind of classified the way that speakers worked back in the day. But um, now, thanks in large part to the structure that was developed um, in the 1970s, 1980s, and then kind of solidified through Pete Laney, was that it's much more formulaic, and that is to the benefit of the House. And that was firsthand, I've heard. Laney developed that calendar within that 140-day calendar because he was tired of Bullock dragging things on and driving the process. He just wanted. I love it. I, love I think it. I've heard it referred to as he wanted to turn Bullock's altometer upside down. I love it. No, yeah, I've seen that too. This is basically Pete Laney forever trolling Bob Bullock, right? Like yeah. you were forever and always until they change these rules, right? It will be the House that will be able to set the tone. Um, like I said, that's really been that way since the 1920s, 1930s, when they start to really establish rules in the House that give them that centralized clarity that they don't get in the Senate until 1950s or so. Yeah. Okay, close us out with a couple of uh, more things we need to know about the lower chamber, as it were. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I think um, the development over time um, has... I think lags slightly behind the U.S. Congress. That's something that um, uh, U.S. the U.S. Congress didn't really kind of materialize into a strong centralized speakership until the turn of the century, turn of the last century. Texas wasn't that far behind, but they took from that the um, kind of benefit that they could be able to make those, um, you know, use that structure to be able to pass things that the party and that the members cared about, and that's a big, big factor here. Um, um, I, that's, that's one of the biggest things. Um, um, the uh, legislature gets bad rap. I mean, they uh, have been pilloried in so many different ways. Um, one of my favorite um, uh, examples was from um, a long ago. This is from um, from the Frederick Law Olmsted, who is famous for designing Central Park and for like the Golden Gate Park and around the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a great book that everybody should read. It's called A Journey Through Texas. It's just before the Civil War, 1857. Basically, it's a story of him, you know, kind of crisscrossing Texas with some traders who were trading various things. Um, and he said the following. He said, we visited several times the Texas legislature in session and have seldom been more impressed with respect for the workings of democratic institutions. But then he goes on to say, one gentleman, a legislator, 
in a state of intoxication attempts to address the House. <laughs> and he was quietly persuaded to retire. So there's always been this kind of raucousness. Um, former legislator Bob Eckhart from Houston remarked that this example in Austin was built for giants, but inhabited by pygmies. And so they get a lot of bad flack, but they do a lot of good too. And so we can't forget that, but I love to celebrate the quirkiness of the, of, of, of the chamber. The rambunctiousness of it. So I'd be, I need to ask you here, uh, what do you expect? I don't want you to pick a person mm. out of the house, but of course there's an open race for the Texas house speaker that'll begin to grab a lot of headlines after the elections in November. Mm. What do you think from what wing of the house or what point on the spectrum do you think the next speaker will come a conservative Republican, a super conservative Republican, a moderate, mm. uh, Mm-hmm. What, what faction of the Republican Party will the speaker come out of? You know, um, so the, the literature on the subject, which looks at state legislatures all across the country for the past you know, 20 or so years, suggests that in almost every instance, the leadership in the lower chamber is chosen from the moderate element of the party. So if history is a guide and if this sort of um, pattern persists, then the Speaker of Texas, uh, Texas House will be somebody who's more moderate. The reason is because their job is to um, kind of make sure that the number two, two things. Number one, the will of the chamber is met, whatever that may be. Number two, to protect the members from having to take tough positions and have to vote on things they don't want to vote on. So part of the reason that Strauss was able to survive for so long was because, at least in my opinion, that like he was able to make sure that um, the kind of more moderate wing of the Republican Party didn't have to take tough positions and things that maybe they didn't want to. Say, for instance, bathroom bill, right? You bottle it up in committee, which means that then it doesn't have to be uh, an issue, you know, for you going back to your moderate district. Um, that example repeats itself, you know, a hundred times every session. Um, so the goal for the speaker then is to basically present themselves in that more kind of moderate um, uh, that more moderate um, area. Um, you also have to be a speaker, somebody who can work with both sides, right? You need to be able to have some kind of a, um, a, a an understanding of what the opposition party is up to, what they're thinking, to be able to make sure you can get what you want passed. So usually moderates are in a better position to be able to communicate those kinds of visions. Yeah, and I think so if that, that's the case, yeah, okay. Well, uh, one point that it drives me crazy, mm-hmm. some people who scantily pay attention to state politics will say, Why is is that Joe Strauss so moderate? And they don't understand that it is the will of the House and that by November, 55 to 60 of that 150-member body are going to be Democrats. And a majority Mm -hmm. vote is 76. So, you know, you've got to get 26, 30 more people and you've got a majority in the House, right? That makes for a moderate. That's right. Yeah, and here's the other thing that speakers know, and that is that the body can change the rules as they wish. There have been points in time where the power of the speaker has been enhanced or decreased based upon being treated mostly the members of the minority party. So, yeah, you're right. If all of the Democrats partner up with you know, some of the more moderate Republicans, they can quell the power of a more conservative speaker. Or if the conservatives are looking for an alternative and the Democrats agree for different reasons, then they can reduce the power of the speaker to, say, appoint people to certain committees um, or to have uh, the ability to reference uh, legislation to specific committees. So they can alter the rules to their advantage. So no speaker wants to be in a position where they're pushing too far. 
the ultimate sort of end to a speaker is that you're removed from power. This is what happened to Tom Craddock, right? The reason that Joe Strauss is speaker is because so many people were unhappy with the way that Craddock was running the House that not just from an ideological perspective, but also from a technical perspective, that they end up um, getting together and finding an alternative in Joe Strauss, who at the time was not a well-known member. I mean, he wasn't like a superstar. He was a kind of backbencher in a way, um, respected, but not well-known. And so most speakers understand that their shelf life can be pretty limited if they run afoul of too many of the members. Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, that's our fourth part. His contact information, by the way, we'll put up on the website with this series get into the fifth part next coming up we'll talk about the house versus the senate two two chambers at war or maybe something a lot less dramatic thank you dr Roddinghouse. hey my pleasure one night in kansas city after we played the show shots rang out So in our fifth installment of Texas Legislature 101 with Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse, we're all in his classroom now as he explains the basics of Texas government. Uh, And this just to help, I've gotten a lot of feedback about, well, I want to understand Texas politics better. This is the primer that we're trying to lay out. And so thankful that Dr. Roddinghouse would give us a time. Uh, all of these are found on our Apple podcast. You can be seen at uh, othersideoftexas.com. First part, origins of the Texas legislature. We moved into governor, lieutenant governor, and the Senate in our third part. And then the House. In our final part here, we want to talk about the House versus the Senate, and the Senate versus the House. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the House and the Senate relations over time. Uh, We know that they're meeting every other year, that they're meeting for six months, uh, excuse me, 140 days every other year. But have those chambers typically always been opposed to one another? There's definitely always been friction. Some of the institutional divides that are set up because of the rules in each chamber, as well as because of um, the Constitution's um, organization of the bicameral system, just naturally sets up what we would consider a cumbersome system. Right. So the fact that each of the different chambers has got different electoral horizons 
um, in different constituencies uh, creates these different political goals. Um, in particular, um, like we mentioned in, in one of the prior um, uh, sessions, the, the Senate has a much bigger um, kind of body of individuals they have to represent. So there tends to be um, a kind of um, a, a broader uh, vision of um, how to uh, kind of go about governing Texas, where the House has a smaller um, kind of edge point and therefore can be kind of more narrow in terms of how they approach things. That's what makes the House much more difficult to govern because they're um, individualistic and there's so many of them, right? So it's difficult to be able to um, kind of, you know, herd that, um, uh, that, that body together. So the years um, where this, the House has been able to kind of organize that effectively have been years where the House has been um, better at and more rapid at passing legislation than the Senate has been. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other is that um, just the whole process itself is fairly cumbersome, right? You've got both chambers having to pass legislation basically at three different points, right? So each bill has to have what we call three readings. Um, and each reading is essentially the introduction um, uh, to a committee, passing by a committee, and then sort of passing um, the floor of each chamber. It takes a lot of work, and there's a lot of built-in friction and stasis in that period. So the difficulty of getting any legislation passed is uh, by itself uh, pretty significant, but doing so across two different chambers that have all these different political and institutional differences makes it even more difficult. So, Dr. Roddinghouse, the just to recap, the House, 150 members, the Senate, 31 members, and in which chamber is it easier to be individualistic? And give us a definition of individualistic as they govern. Yeah. Yeah, so for, for most of the way that the kind of upper chambers work, and this is actually true for the U.S. Senate too, um, typically the uh, an individual legislator is given much more leeway because the rules are typically set up to allow the Senate to what we call kind of cool the heat that might come from the legend that the, the lower chamber or the house um george washington was famous for um sort of explaining it in the following way he said that of the u.s house and senate that essentially the senate is like the teacup that we use to cool down the kind of hot tea that the house might otherwise pour um the same is really true at least institutionally for the house and senate in texas the uh the rules in the house are designed to allow for an individual to have a lot more say so we had mentioned um when we talked about the lieutenant governor and lieutenant governor's power um the need to be able to have three-fifths of the membership in the senate uh, agree to be able to pursue and to be able to initiate debate on legislation that in of itself is a pretty tall order nothing like that in the house exists uh, the speaker of the house has fairly wide range to be able to push legislation they prefer so an individual um, is much more um, kind of powerful in the you know the, the Texas Senate in general than they are in the Texas House uh. It's so easy. I want to get a historical perspective to get deep mm. roots on the issue, but it's so easy to jump into the cult, the current uh, situation. Um, give us a couple of points in history before we get in with mm. with with Lieutenant Governor in in parlance. People say mm -hmm. Governor Patrick, but with Lieutenant yeah. Governor Patrick versus Joe Strauss. What are a couple of other historical situations of speaker versus lieutenant governor? Yeah. Um, 
you know, there have been moments where they have um, been at odds. It's often been a kind of political odds. Um, you know, uh, in the 1970s, Price Daniel Jr., who was the son of Price Daniel, um, who was governor um, before that um, period, um, had um, kind of run afoul of some of the lieutenant governors. Um, he had claimed and, frankly, exclaimed that the House had been, quote, raped, pillaged, and ridiculed by the Texas Senate. Um, it's not that uh, dissimilar, frankly, to what we saw in the 2017 session, right? Harold Dutton um, admonished the chamber to open up the House doors, and then all of the House members would basically, you know, yell and scream and carry on that, like, the Senate hadn't <laughs> passed their bills. Um, it was a fairly dramatic moment. So this is actually a long history. Um, uh, and so speakers have for a long time, you know, blamed lieutenant governors for the slowness of the process. Lieutenant governors have blamed the House for the slowness of their process. So um, it is a, a, an ongoing conflict that um, hasn't, you know, really resolved itself and probably never will, given the way that the system is set up. Um, we shouldn't forget that the process designed to not pass legislation rather than to pass legislation. So um, we often look at the U.S. Congress in the same way and say, well, why are we you know, paying them all this money and we spend all the time electing them and they don't do anything, they don't pass anything? Well, the process is really designed to minimize that to happen. So um, the Texas legislature is even more true where getting something stopped is easier than getting something started. So that's part of that kind of super majoritarian aspect of the way that the, the process works and the balance of the different um, powers that are um, part of this. Um, so there's been a long history of the contentious relationship between the House and Senate. Um, in fact, part of the early um, uh, kind of differences of political opinion were around Sam Houston and his approach. I pulled two that were from the early Congresses. This is from the Congress of the Republic. Um, in one case, um, uh, there was a question about whether or not and how to fund militia troops. This is in the third Congress of the Republic. Um, the mm. House pushed a bill to appropriate uh, about $20,000 in script. Um, the Senate objected because they said basically issuing more script is worthless. Um, we talked about this early on. The, um, the Republic had a terrible debt problem, and they were issuing script, which was basically worthless. Um, I like to tell people that like part of the reason that uh, the University of Texas has that burnt orange color as their um, as their part of their school colors is that the script from the early Republic was that burnt orange color. So in fact, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a barb against the, you know, UT uh, and, and company, but um, it's a kind of worthless script that was being issued. And so that interaction created um, a kind of, I think, real hallmark for how they deal with each other. Another was um, in the fourth Congress, this is um, uh, also um, related to Sam Houston and Sam Houston's forces in the House um, introduced a bill basically to sell lands that were formerly occupied by the Cherokee. Now, what this bill did was basically acknowledge that the land did belong to the Cherokee. Well, this didn't sit well with many people who objected to Houston's approach to this, right? He was much more kind of friendly towards, you know, former um, and even then current Native Americans. Um, this was a kind of rebuke to President Lamar, who was president at the time. Um, so one of the senators suggested that, um, in quote, I do not wish senators to bow down like groveling curs to party spirit, <laughs> uh, acknowledging that this sort of rift had existed. Um, the Senate approved alternative wording, but then basically balked when the House added $45,000 to conduct a survey, which even at the time was a lot of money. So um, the bill was then re issued to committees where it died. So there has been a long history of House-Senate um, kind of um, interactions and friction, but it's really designed to do exactly that. 
So, Dr. Roddinghouse, you've got me thinking, and I'm not prepared because I've not memorized chapter and verse. Robert Caro's, I believe his Master of the Senate, might have been the second mm. one. The U.S. Senate is the place where the walls stand tall, where cultural tides come with great momentum only to be stopped uh, at the Senate walls. Uh, Senate bodies, whether that be federal or state, are typically meant to uh, stop and to cool, as you said, to cool the cup. Mm -hmm. That seems not to be the case today. Uh, with the te yeah. It seems to me the Texas Senate will take up any cultural issue at any time. Like, you got it, bring it, let's talk about it. Uh, was not always the case. Uh, is this a product of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, or was can we trace this back through Dewhurst into former Lieutenant Governor Rick Perry? Mm-hmm. I definitely think that the, the kind of political overture um, could be traced back at least to the 1990s. So I would say, yeah, back as far as Rick Perry when he was um, lieutenant governor and then, and then governor was really when you started to see the bodies begin to push uh, for a, an electorally connected legislative outcome, if that makes sense. Hmm. Now, everything's about politics, right? You can't get away from that. But there's a sense that you could unify what happened in the chamber with what was happening outside the chamber. Texas is traditionally a weak party state. In political science, we consider weak party states to be those that don't have sufficient kind of party discipline within the chamber. Um, this is changing to some degree. Um, part of the reason it was called that and labeled that was because there was so much heterogeneity in the parties, right? The Democratic Party was so split with the Republicans, with the conservatives and with the more liberals and moderates that mm -hmm. it was unable to maintain a kind of party discipline. Once the 1980s, 1990s come around, you begin to see the sorting almost complete. So party discipline becomes much more doable for parties. So then you could have a lieutenant governor and you could have a speaker who could then say, okay, now I can link my party platform to my legislative agenda. That's something before that that was really tough. Republicans were like so few in number that, you know, they, they weren't even talked about for a long time. I've got a great um, book from the 1950s. It's a government book from the 1950s on Texas government, and they don't even talk about the Republicans. <laughs> they were an afterthought in so many ways, and it's funny to think that now, but um, there really weren't that many Republicans around. Um, it wasn't until 1950 that like, the first Republican was elected to uh, the U.S. Congress, and so it is a really rare, it was a really rare event. Um, actually, um, there's a great story um, that um, that was told in Robert in John Meacham's book about George H.W. Bush. He said uh, he related a story that um, when he, um, George H.W. Bush and his wife Barbara were um, precinct chairs in uh, Midland, they were running an election for a particular precinct, and um, literally nobody else voted except for them. And he said they said that one other person stumbled in <laughs> drunk <laughs> and was not sure where they were. So uh, being a Republican in Texas for a long time was um, a pretty lonely thing. Um, but I digress. Um, but so really, yeah, you didn't have until 1980s, 1990s, a period where the parties were unified enough you could make those kinds of clear legislative claims um, to what the party was going to do outside. Hmm. So... Again, a, a theme, we're in the fifth part, but I've listened to you talk now 
for a good deal of time. And a thing that you've continued to hit is this desired party outcome, this desired uh, political outcome. And let's go to now I'm going to stop trying to get myself to 2018, but let's go to 2018. Now, uh, Patrick, to me, the lieutenant governor, his aim seems to constantly be a political outcome. Um, and I wonder how that is going to set up. Of course, the House is in an open, there's an open race for the speaker. I think, you know, based upon our last session, I think that you're right. I think that there will be a speaker. I think that it will be of a for price mode out of Amarillo. I think it'll be a Drew Darby mode out of San Angelo. Um, a couple other people come to mind. Uh, but how is that going to shape Texas going forward? Uh, a desired party outcome versus a desired uh, need in the House, a desired party outcome on the Senate side versus a desired let's let the house vote its conscience on the lower chamber side. Yeah. I think that the interaction between whoever is speaker and the lieutenant governor is going to be key. Um, that's not to say that the lieutenant governor should have any say because this is what the house does, but it's definitely the case that there has to be some synergy. Um, it began to be the case um, around about the 1950s where each of the kind of what they call the big three um, now, that's the speaker and the governor and um, the lieutenant governor would get together, um, oftentimes with the attorney general, um, to be able to talk through a kind of strategy, like what are we going to do this session? And so that is essential to be able to understand kind of where the members are and where things are going to go. Um, I do suspect that you're going to find, again, the House being the drag um, on the flotilla. I don't see a way around it, given the way that the system is structured, um, and also given the way that Dan Patrick wants to accelerate the speed of passage of this legislation. I mean, one of the big things we saw at the end of um, the, the 85th and the beginning of the special session was that, you know, Dan Patrick was claiming credit and was crowing about having passed the bills faster than the House. So I just think, I mean, there's no way around that in some ways, because um, this institutional sort of design is that way on purpose. But it's also the case that um, politically, of course, you know, Dan Patrick wants to align himself with um, the more conservative elements of, of, uh, of, Go of Governor Abbott's uh, call, whatever that may be. So it's definitely the case that um, you're going to find that friction continue no matter who gets to be elected. Um, one question is whether or not that matters. Um, and, and one of the things that I did was to look at the kind of ideological um, split by chamber uh, since about the 1990s. And we've mm. seen in Texas, like you said, a real um, kind of emergence of a conservative wing of the party, which has pulled the Republicans into a more conservative direction. And there's also, of course, in the other direction, the Democrats are pulling their, um, their coalition into a more liberal direction. So the question is what effect that has on the number of items passed or the ratio of items passed, in this case, of those brought up. Um, and so I just did a kind of quick scatter plot. Um, my colleague here at the University of Houston, Boris Shore, has mapped the ideological um, individual um, pinpoint for in legislators in all legislation, in all legislators um, in all states um, since 2000. And so using his data, what I did is to basically do a scatter plot of like, you know, pass ratio um, on one axis and chamber polarization on the other. And not surprisingly, the more polarized the process, the less likely it is that things are going to get done. So what we're likely to look at here is just a kind of stasis, and very little legislation will get passed. 
this again is part of the system. It's the way it's designed. It also is politically resonant with what many Republicans want, which is small government through nothing happening, right? Um, but when you consider in the context of some bills that need to be passed and problems that have to be addressed, it could be problematic. So there are some serious um, implications to the divide between the House and the Senate. Wow. Stasis. You threw out, I, I lost track of everything, all, all the big words you just used there. But I mean, that, that it really is. It's fascinating to see how all that stuff comes to bear and yeah. uh, that it's coming to bear right now. Uh, there are several big things that need to be addressed. And, you know, the Dallas Morning News wrote a, a big series. We're broadcasting this in the week of, uh, I think this is about June 11th. We pre-recorded this, but uh, about Medicaid and Medicaid third parties that are hired out and, and what happens there. It's certainly going to be a, a ruffle. It's going to become a ruckus, I should say, in the next legislature. And also, uh, we've got school finance and these things. But you think, based upon your work, that the more ideological it's been, the less pragmatic policy will be addressed. Yeah, and this is differences between the House and the Senate, too. So, I mean, you know, they're both run by Republicans, so you've got unified government in that way. And in theory, the governor would be supportive of much of what the Republicans end up passing in both chambers. But we've got this divide in the party that doesn't allow for there to be a kind of smooth um, uh, outcome for, uh, for, for the relationship. Um, and I would say, honestly, too, it's, it's ironic that, in fact, one of the things that Paul Burka, who is a longtime writer for the um, Texas Monthly, uh, suggested was a major problem of the rise of the conflict in Texas um, ideologically was that the power of the governor really expanded. So I think Perry was one of the big reasons why the um, governor expanded um, their authority. Um, and they in some ways dominated the legislature. So you saw the kind of um, kind of conflict being um, led by this kind of strong leadership in both, uh, in, in really one party, then, and then the other party kind of responded. So this kind of polarization is not likely to go away. Um, I will say that one thing that is an interesting kind of byproduct of an architectural outcome that you don't think about, uh, that we don't typically think about as an explanation for why polarization exists, is that in the same article, Paul Burke suggested that the capital expansion, which uh, finalizes in 1993, I think, but was begun like, you know, before that, uh, where um, the capital, you know, now extends underground, like back behind mm -hmm. underground, uh, the capital. Um, it's it's beautiful and you know really um, you know stunning views and from from many of the perspectives there. But what it did was that it essentially um, pulled a lot of the member offices into that annex, and now they don't see each other as much. So their interactions are on social media or through regular media, media or on the house floor where they yell at each other. <laughs> so the difficulty in getting people to just sort of sit and talk and you know. Uh, break bread, you know, share a beer or whatever, um, those things are less than they used to be. So it's creating, uh, again, this kind of political rift that's hard to heal. Hmm. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions, but in the couple of minutes we have remaining here, I think a couple of parting thoughts from you would be more appropriate. So for people trying to understand the House versus the Senate and, well, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Mm. I am going to ask you one question. Yeah. 
if you're right, if the research is right, and uh, the next Speaker of the House is more of a moderated conservative Republican who wants to serve the best of that 150-member body, it seems to me that all the talking points on Joe Strauss right now by and large, like eight out of 10 of the talking points on Joe Strauss by more ideologically bent people in and outside of the legislature, we'll just scrub Joe Strauss's name out and then write in the new speaker's name and go forward. Uh, yeah. That that seems to me to be the line that we're on. Is that a correct assumption? I think that that's generally correct. Um, for those speakers who have put for lack of a better way of putting it, ideology or politics ahead of the institution, they have not had a very long-term speaker. Um, and I think in the current climate, you're exactly right, that the differences and the divide within the Republican Party make it difficult to govern it, period. Finding the right person will be critical. Um, I think there are lots of good options. I mean, you named a couple um, that could do the job. And to be honest, in history, we've seen all kinds of moments where like somebody who was elected speaker who, you know, nobody really looked at as somebody who was going to be a great unifier of a party or somebody who was going to make a tremendous institutional difference. So we don't know the person. And to be honest, it may be the case that we, you know, somebody is elected that we never really thought would be elected. So um, there's a long history of that in the state. Um, but generally speaking, if, if, if a speaker has put um, – if a speaker has put politics above institutional development or institutional strength in the House or has put politics or ideology above the will of the House, they have tended to not survive in office as long. That's not to say that it won't be political outcomes and there won't be friction ideologically, because there definitely will be. That's the way the system is set up. But um, it is to say that, um, that, that it, when one goes too far with that, then speakers tend to suffer. Branding Roddinghouse, I wish we could go on and on. I'm sure that you could keep going for another 10 hours, but uh, we got to cut it. out and make some advertising money. Uh, gotcha, here. gotcha. Uh, so what's your next book you're working on here? So I'm, um, I'm doing the second edition of the Texas government book, Inside Texas Politics, so um, updating with all of the fun things that have happened since uh, the last uh, issue. Um, yeah, 2015 and was the last one, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot's changed, and so it's uh, a definitely um, an interesting thing to kind of see evolve oh, over oh, the years. Okay, so um, I'm not done with the interview. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Since yeah. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, introduced and that we did away with the two-thirds which meant that you rough you had to have what roughly 20 senators which means mm -hmm. you had to have bipartisan support for a bill to come to the floor now it's 19 which is yep. important because the chamber right now is at 20 republicans uh now yes. now you've got a three-fifths rule essentially they used to walk around with blue cards in order to get legislation to the floor now it's essentially run by patrick uh where you don't see those cards any longer how much of your update of inside texas politics from 2015 to 2018 will be doing away with the cards uh, let me ask you a better mm -hmm. way that seems to be a pretty monumental shift in legislature. 
how much of your update will have to do with how the Senate has shifted since doing away with the two-thirds rule? Yeah, a, a couple different ways. I mean, number one, it's definitely the case that the politics and the institutional rules have advantaged the lieutenant governor, specifically this lieutenant governor. So, you know, I, I don't know how long you know Patrick will be in office, but any lieutenant governor who's a Republican who comes after him with the same setup is going to have the same kinds of rules and the same kinds of abilities. So a lot of the changes that we've seen have really been, like I said, you know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick um, solidifying power as quickly and perhaps as, um, as uniformly as we've seen any lieutenant governor in history. So that's definitely a, a big factor. The other factor is just the, the ideological position of the legislation that is now produced by the Senate is more conservative than it was before the rule changed. Um, and so, not surprisingly, right, you've got um, more, uh, you, have to have, you have to have fewer people agree, and those people tend to be more politically alike than what was happening before the rule was changed and before Lieutenant Governor Patrick was, you know, putting his fairly conservative stamp on the, on the agenda. So the, the, those are the two biggest things. The, um, number one is just the politics and the rules have now aligned to make the lieutenant governor as powerful, perhaps more powerful than the governor. Uh, and the other is that the tenor and ideological position of legislation is becoming much more conservative with these rule changes. So, but I will note one caveat, okay. and that is that lieutenant governor is only as powerful as the Senate allows. It's kind of like where the House writes its own rules; they could strip the speaker of some powers. Um, I have a friend um, who is a, a former, um, uh, who formerly worked uh, for lieutenant governor, not this lieutenant governor, um, uh, but for, worked for the lieutenant governor, um, and he had what he called the rule of sixteen angry senators, and that is don't anger sixteen senators at once, because a majority of the members can amend the rules to change the structure and power of the lieutenant governor's uh, ability to be able to do all kinds of things like, um, you know, assign committees or uh, to ferret legislation uh, into different committees. So uh, there are restrictions, there are rules that if lieutenant governor or speaker, for that matter, gets out of hand uh, or violates some um, some kind of a, um, an unwritten or written rule that they can kind of strip that person of specific powers. Do you find... <laughs> Here I said that we're going to end this interview, but I'm intrigued. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> I find a lot. I appreciate you saying that. I find a lot of prop in the nomenclature now. Like I'm a West Texan. I'm, my grand, my great grandmother told me stories about how fascinated they were when Santa Claus brought them onions and oranges in their stockings like i get it okay i get the survival pioneer mentality of texas but it really bothers me whenever i look at news stories now now that we've talked about the house and senate and the how it's played out over time and in all this party minded end game i just i read stories and even a couple times listening to you like what i here now is conservative is not what I was grown up with. That's not what I grew up with. And I'm 39. So it's not like I'm saying this and I'm 69. Um, but I don't, at what point, and this is a little off point from the interview itself, but just trying to classify these tr traditional labels of liberal and conservative, these initiatives if conservative means to conserve, 
it seems like the institutions that we need to look after that have existed all you know for the better part of two centuries in texas well 150 years in texas <clears throat> we are not conserving those i mean do yeah. we need to like have a forum for journalists to attend led by dr brandon roddinghouse to say <laughs> okay here's what conservative means here's what liberal means here's what moderate means mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, actually, there's a great book. Um, it's called Cowboy Conservatism. It's by um, a history professor up in your neck of the woods, Sean Cunningham. Um, the argument in the book basically says that, I'll, I'll summarize, and that is that Texas didn't change, but perceptions of the parties in Texas changed. Uh, and what he means by that um, is that basically the Democrats in the 1970s um, had be, then had sort of shifted to become a party that looked like more liberal, that was, um, you know, willing to, you know, bus, you know, students across um, counties. It was willing to um, kind of allow for, you know, draft dodgers to, you know, be, uh, to, to have amnesty, stuff like that. Um, um, increasingly, people began to associate conservatism with the Republican Party, and that meant what it used to mean for the Democratic Party, which was low taxes, um, kind of modest spending, um, and generally kind of a you know conservative mindset. Um, so that kind of explains in some ways the change in terms of party labels over time. But um, Texas has always been a place, and the parties have always been a place where the there has been much debate inside each office and each uh, party about kind of what these labels mean and what we should do about them, right? And that's um, become, um, I think, uh, a much less likely to happen now, right, where the parties are kind of fixed in terms of their um, their approaches. And, you know, a lot of this gets adjudicated, number one, at the conventions that we're like, we're going to have here pretty soon, um, and number two, in elections, and number three, in the legislative session. So, um, but it is a difficult um, kind of thing to be able to have such a big tent when you've got so many different kinds of interests. For a long time, the Democratic Party had that, but um, now um, uh, they're, they're sort of fairly narrow, as are the Republicans. Um, I'll say one last thing, and that is um, there's a great couple of stories where, well, when Texas needed money the most, the state provided. Um, so my way I think about it is like um, one way of thinking about it is you know, who needs taxes when Texas is blessed? Two examples. One is that in 1950 or 1850, rather, um, you had um, a kind of serious debt problem. And Texas, as you know, used to have more than just be land beyond the panhandle, right? Like the boundaries basically had it going into New Mexico and to parts of Utah. Um, so basically the compromise of 1850 allowed for Texas to get paid about $10 million. Texas used that money then to basically create a school system and to um, build public buildings. Um, and so they were kind of saved from themselves through this fortune. Uh, the other, and this is more recent, and this is in October of 1929, as you know, the stock market crashes. Well, 10 months later, Dad Joyner struck strikes the biggest oil reserve in history that was under Kilgore. In fact, it's still one of the biggest to date. So the state has always had this kind of, I don't know if you call it luck <laughs> or if it's providence, but it's definitely um, this kind of sense that, um, you know, we don't need to have this kind of investment in things. We can just kind of count on things to go well for us. Uh, and that has, to some degree, kind of governed a lot of what public policy happens in the state. Hmm. Well, there it is, your five parts. If you're interested in Texas politics or know friends who might be interested, we've laid out this five-part series so much uh, so much to do with the work of Dr. Brandon Roddinghouse there at the University of Houston. And uh, Dr. Roddinghouse, thank you for taking time to do this series here on Other Side of Texas, bud. 
It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll uh, have some contact information for Dr. Roddinghouse and uh, put it up there on the other side of Texas as we put the series up. And uh, hope you enjoy it. And hope you'll pass along to friends. Oh.